0: The kiddos can go to Children's Church, and if you've got your Bibles, you can open them to Matthew chapter 25. I did not know last week when I was talking about being ready for the coming of the Lord or being ready to meet Him at any moment that somebody very famous was dying at that very moment. And of course, as soon as the sermon was over, somebody came up to me and said Kobe Bryant had been killed with his daughter and other people on that helicopter. And then right after we got home from church, I had to run up to Home Depot, and there was a... The, the north the southbound one was totally empty, and I am like, what's with that? And then I'm driving along, and there was a car upside down just in the middle of the freeway, shredded. And there was nobody around it. It was just sitting there. And then I kept going farther, and then there was another car, and then there was all the emergency vehicles. I totally shut down the vehicle because there was a fatality on the freeway. Um, At the same time, we were talking about being ready for the Lord. So these verses come to life when things like that happen, and um, you just have to hope people were ready, right? So uh, it's critical stuff. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll look at our text again. Father, we uh, are speaking of Christ's own words, reading his words, hearing his words about being ready for his coming and not being caught by surprise. And that surprise can come in many ways. It can come by our unexpected passing into judgment, and it can come by surprise when you return in judgment as well. So make our hearts focus on these great truths. It should not only be true for us that the way this hits us, but true for those we care about, that they need the word of God. And so we ask for your help in studying together this morning in Christ's name, amen. Okay, well we're coming to the third of the readiness parables and since the Lord provided such a great sermon illustration last week. But, um, so this is the third one found in the Olivet Discourse. It's, it's been really heavy going. It, it's gonna get even heavier here in this next passage starting at verse 14. Jesus says, sharpening... Our focus on judgment, on the reality that everyone will give an account of his or her life to him. And each of these parables emphasizes the fact that in judgment, each person being looked at winds up in just one of two places. Or you go in one of two directions. You're either blessed or cursed. You're either in or out. You're either rewarded or you're rejected. And Jesus is preparing us through these parables, these stories for the straight teaching he's gonna give at the end of the chapter where he describes all of humanity being separated into two groups, the sheep and the goats. So in Jesus' teaching, there's always two destinations, there's only two, there's not three, there's not seven, there's not 45, it's always two, two ways to go, this way or that way, the narrow road or the broad road, you're either a good fish or a bad fish, you're a sheep or you're a goat, it's just always this twofold division. You're either with God or you're away from God. And the parables are designed as warnings. Why are warnings needed? Well, if you look at the parables themselves, it tells you some people are wicked. That's the first parable, the wicked shepherd. Some people are foolish. That's the second parable, the the girls that didn't bother preparing for the bridegroom. And some people are lazy. And that's our parable today, the third parable. The wicked, the foolish, and the lazy are not going to make it into the kingdom of God. But they don't believe that. They think they're fine. It's, It's a surprise when they find out they're not gonna be there. They either don't think about it or they think it really can't happen that this glorious kingdom of righteousness is gonna come and they're gonna be on the outs. They just don't think that could happen. And they're not very interested in knowing God. They're not interested in what God is interested in. They don't believe that God is as he reveals himself in the Bible. So each of the parables identifies some aspect of the unbelieving, and I have to say the unbelieving church member, really, because all of these people have some kind of relationship with this Lord who's coming. And it's each one. Each one is either a servant of his, or in the case of the virgin daughters, they know the bridegroom, and their specific task is to wait for him. So these are religious people, church people. They're not pagans living somewhere. So uh, it's a very direct call to the religious, and uh, you can be in church and be unconverted. You can be in church in your whole life and be unconverted. It's just not, um, that's not what saves, right? You have to have a relationship with God, a real relationship with Him. So common to all of these people is really unbelief. So they might be religious, but it's, it's a vague kind of religion for them. They don't know the living God. They don't think about him. Uh, He doesn't order their life. They don't say, what would God have me do today? They don't think that way. So in the first parable, which was in chapter 24, verse 45 through 51, we see this foolish person. We see the blatantly evil church leader. He abuses the flock. He's in it for himself. He's dissolute. He's caught in the middle of his revelry by... His master who just suddenly returns, the unexpected return of his Lord. And Jesus says of him, he shall be cut in pieces and assigned a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and gnashing of teeth, which is not a good end. In the second parable, chapter 25, 1 through 13, you have the foolish person, a a Christian by name, but too distracted by other things, to obtain the salvation that only comes by humble submission to Christ, by faith, which marks the presence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. This person doesn't seek salvation until it's just too late. They don't bother. So the, the foolish girls in the second parable, they didn't have what was needed. They were spiritually neglectful. And so today we come to this other sort of person. Again, it's a person that has a very specific task that they're given, just like the first parable's servant is given the responsibility to care for the other servants, and like the maidens in the second parable have this task to wait for the bridegroom, this person, this man, is given a task, but in his heart he despises his master. And this is a longer parable, and besides identifying another type of unpreparedness and another type of unbelief, this parable also has some really good things, in it. some wonderful insight into how God deals with those who do know him, the genuine believer that has a relationship with him. So this is a really, there's a positive side to all of this in the midst of this fearful and terrifying warning. So let's look at it, Uh, verse 14, Matthew chapter 25, it starts... For it is like, it being the same thing the previous parable is like. In chapter 25, verse 1, what's, the, what's it like? These parables are like the kingdom of God. That's exactly right, the kingdom of God. So again, this is not about earthly things. It's not about money or investments in business. It's about spiritual things. The human situation here is a metaphor. It's a, it's a picture putting spiritual truth in, in a a human word picture, daily life kind of form to make an analogy. So this is how Jesus does it. It is just like, the kingdom is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possession to them. Verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two and to another, one, each according to his ability, and he went on his journey. So the master is going away. Every Christian can identify with this. Our master was crucified, dead, resurrected, spent 40 days with his apostles, and then went away, right? And we've been here ever since, waiting for his return. So he's going on a journey. So that's really easy to figure out how that's like the kingdom of God, Jesus is not physically present on earth to dictate his affairs, so he gives us his tasks and he gives us gifts to work with, his word and his spirit, and we are entrusted to make good use of those things. So a very interesting feature of this story is the different amounts that the servants are given. That's just an interesting feature. And it says in verse 15, each according to his ability. So God recognizes our differences. Do you know that? It's not a one-size-fits-all giftedness that we have. He knows our personalities. He knows our natural gifts, our abilities, our circumstances, our backgrounds, and we're not the same. There's probably not two people in this room that are the same in these kind of things in their lives. There's, there's all kinds of capacities that we have and some we don't have. There's all kinds of capacities I wish I had that I definitely don't have. And, but instead of focus on that, there are certain gifts and capacities that I do have, and I need to use those, how? For my glory. No, that's not right. For my king, that's, that's how I'm supposed to use them, because I am his slave. And whatever he wants, that's what I'm going to do. So his expectations of us, God's expectations of you, are based on what he knows about you. And the things he gives you to work with in this life are personalized. They're for you. They're just what you need. So don't forget that. Your gifts are for you to exercise in specific areas and ways. You can usually figure out what they are by what your strengths are, what other people see in you as a strength in you, which is not to say don't work on weak areas, but um, we have what we have. We want to give that to the Lord in some meaningful way and give him our giftedness. So I'm pretty confident I have some sort of gift because what I'm doing right now is something I absolutely hate. It's the opposite of my personality. I mean, I am pretty introverted, and to get up in front of people was the scariest, most horrific thing in my life and give a talk. So, I mean, that, I would never wanna do that until after I became a Christian, and then, and then it kinda worked out that way. And I actually like it, but that was like the great fear. It's not, it's not intrinsic in my personality to be a speaker in front of other people. I wanted to make films, that's what I wanted to do, so I could be away and just sit and watch them with people, not not be up front talking to people, I hated that kind of a, a thing. That was my life long, long ago, many, really long ago. <laughs> anyway, this makes me happy now because um, people tell me that I help them understand the Bible, and that is everything to me. So that makes me a very happy person. So um, I'll take the gift and I'll use it even though it's not my nature. So when it's a gift, you actually enjoy it. And some people do hospitality really well. Some people love to quietly meet other people's needs without them knowing about it. Some people counsel people. Some people are prayer warriors. And some manage things really well. Some people write well. Some people use the arts well. There's all kinds of natural talents and spiritual gifts which we can use to glorify the Lord Jesus by exercising them and serving them in this church thing that he calls his body. So this parable is about money. Now again, it's not about money. It's about gifts, okay? The money's just a metaphor for that. So he's using money as a metaphor for giftedness. Talents is not I can play the guitar and sing, it's money. So that's what the word is in the Bible time, okay? It's a money word, in fact, it's a big money word. A talent is 6,000 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage for a typical worker, you know, an average uh, street kind of worker, a regular guy kind of wage. So 6,000 days of a workman's labor, that's a lot of money. Um, It would take Joe the working man 16 years without spending anything to actually accumulate a talent, one talent. Have you have seen Ben-Hur, the movie Ben-Hur, the old movie, you know, with Charlton Heston? Masala, uh, the villain, is, his, th- these Arabs come and offer him a bet on the chariot race, you know, and they say, okay, and they make these agreements say, well, how much do you want to wager? And they said, and he hands them this little, he might sound something, he hands it to him, and he goes, a thousand talents, a thousand talents, Yes, a thousand talents. If it is too much, no, no. You know. So, um, why would he react? A thousand talents, because that's beyond. That's huge. It's a it's a vast amount of money, and he's betting his life on it. So, um, this master is giving each of his servants quite a large amount of wealth. Not a thousand talents. Five talents, which is a huge amount of wealth, and then two talents, and then one talent, each according to his ability. So what does that mean? It means God gives us resources to work with in this world now. That's what it means. I'm reminded of um, Ephesians chapter one verse three which says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places In Christ. So every Christian has certain things that just belong to them to start with. There's this great base foundation of giftedness. We all have these marvelous blessings to empower us, enable us, inspire us. What things are those? Well, if you keep reading after that Ephesians thing, it says we're adopted as God's children. So we're actually children of God. We have redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins. And Paul says there in Ephesians, according to the riches of his grace, as rich as God is in grace and mercy, that's how full and complete this redemption is, this forgiveness is. And Paul also says he made known to us the mystery of his will, so we know his purpose and his plan, the big plan, might not know your personal plan, but we know the big plan, that Christ is going to restore all things to its proper place, and we're part of that plan, and then you keep reading, and it says we have an inheritance, Paul says in verse 11, Ephesians one eleven. We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. That's talking about this transformation of our life which abounds to his praise and the things we do on this earth glorify him. That's amazing stuff. Every Christian has that. Every Christian has that. And more than that, we all have promises that are in Christ that we all share. I will never leave you or forsake you. Um, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He's incredible, wonderful promises. We all have that. So there's plenty to rely on. There's plenty to hang our hats on. There's riches untold that God has already provided for us. That's just the base, the foundation. Then 1 Corinthians 12 says that the Holy Spirit gives individual gifts to everybody. Just as he wills, it's his choice, and he gives different giftings to different people. So spiritual blessings, promises, and special gifts, all of that is ours. So what do the servants do with all this wealth? Well, verse 16, it says, immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. So he invested them in some way and did a lot of wheeling and dealing and ended up with 10 talents, Verse 17, in the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. So the first two servants get to work right away, both of them. They both know the master wanted them to use the gifts that he gave them to be productive, and they get right into it. Buying this, selling that, investing, trading, lending, building, selling, productive usage there of that money. But the third servant, he does something really different. He doesn't squander it. He buries it. He buries his talent. Verse 18, the one who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. So no matter how long his master's gonna be gone, he won't have to deal with it or think about it until he gets back. If if he's gone for a month, he'll think about it in a month. If he's gone for 10 years, he'll think about it in 10 years. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He just buries it. In his mind, he's keeping it safe. But he has no concern for what the master gave it to him for. It doesn't faze him one bit. He doesn't think about that. So eventually the master returns. So in kingdom terms, what it actually represents is Messiah returns. Christ comes back in glory. That's Jesus, right? And it's been a long time. Verse 19. Now after a long time, does the Bible teach that Jesus comes back after a long time? Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's been 2,000 years, that's a long time, uh, it could be three, it could be 2001 years, it could be 2,000 years And in... anyway, I won't get into all that, but it could be any time, right? So, it's a long time, it's been a long time. And then he says, he comes and settles accounts with them. So he comes to settle accounts, and why would anybody think he wouldn't do that since he gave them the money to use for his purposes, right? So that's what he's doing. How did they do with what was entrusted to them? So he starts with the first servant, verse 20. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Wow. Notice the full and abounding praise he gets and the reward that is given to this faithful man. So this five-talent guy did really, really well. Well done, good and faithful servant. Words like that from the lips of Christ That carries an inherent joy. It's kind of hard to comprehend on earth, but if you actually, when you see him, he actually says to you, well done, good and faithful servant, that would be a really good thing to hear. That's his commendation, his appreciation, his praise of his faithful servants. It matters what we do. The reward he gives is more service. He says, you were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. So here you get a little glimpse into the coming kingdom, the age to come in which we will be there with Christ as glorified human beings. The age of the Messiah is not gonna be boring. Forget the harps on clouds stuff. We're not given a lot of detail in the Bible but what we are told is really interesting and you can especially see it in the rewards that Jesus dispenses to the faithful people in the church age uh, in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, it says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Wow. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Who? Us. As the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, so I have received authority from my Father. So Christ has received authority to give, to give authority over the nations to all who overcome and who keep his deeds. Revelation 5.10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Revelation 26, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So the millennial kingdom, when Christ comes back, glorified saints are going to rule that kingdom with him. And the more faithful you are, the more position you will have the more responsibility you will have that's sort of the idea there which is a wonderful thought because people are going to be born into that kingdom people that live through the end of the age are going to populate the world they're going to have children and those are going to be natural children and there's going to be a whole world populated by these people of imperfect human beings but these glorified human beings are going to be ruling the world with christ so it's going to be a really it's going to be a righteous kingdom be really interesting So those who live for Christ and enter his kingdom will rule it at his side and in his name. That much seems really clear. So when he talks about authority, I think that's what he's talking about here. And who better to rule than redeemed people, people that were sinners and were saved by grace? Who better to rule a world of imperfect people than saved people? Not people that were never sinners, but people who were sinners and know what it's like to be gracious. So those people ruling by Christ's side are going to be compassionate, understanding, generous, gracious, and understand the importance of holiness and righteousness and truth and all of that. So they're the perfect people to help him run that kingdom. Anyway, we're going to be able to demonstrate the same compassion and righteousness that he has shown to us in an inhabited world, ruling with Christ in some future kingdom So the most humble saint today could be a ruler of nations in the future world. So the master's final words to the first servant really summed up the joys of the kingdom. Enter into the joy of your master. It is a joyous existence, it's awesome. So of course this was the guy with five talents, I mean exceptional abilities, right? He had the most to start with. Well let's go to servant number two. He had two talents, that's less than half of the talents given to the first man. What happened to him? Verse 22. Also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. He did what the first guy did. He doubled his take, if you will. He invested it, did what was the master wanted to do with it and, and doubled it. But his doubling it is less than the amount the master gave the first guy. So he's only got four talents. That's less than the first guy got. The first guy has ten talents. So what happens to this guy? His master said to him, Well done. Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. What's the difference? No difference. No difference they were given each according to their ability, if they took what their abilities were and used them for Christ and were faithful, it's the same reward, it's the same reward. Super saints get the same reward as little saints if they're faithful, that's all he cares about is the faithfulness part of it. So he gets exactly the same credit, he gets exactly the same praise from the Messiah, he gets exactly the same reward and the wording that Jesus uses is exactly the same. It's exactly the same words. Well done, good and faithful slave. So it wasn't how much he made, but that he dedicated himself to use that with, with which he was entrusted. That's what it's about. We often think that these great saints of history are gonna be the top people in heaven and have the greatest rewards. You know, preachers like Spurgeon or D.L. Moody or missionaries like Amy Carmichael or St. Patrick of Ireland or great theologians like John Calvin or... Jonathan Edwards or people like that. Those are five talent people for sure, right? But it will be the same praise and the same reward for a mother that leads her children faithfully in the way of faith and love for Christ, the the, the dedicated church worker who who builds or organizes or who cleans stuff or does all the work that supports the ministry of the word, the Sunday school teacher, the youth worker, the, the counselor, the person who sees those quiet needs in a congregation and goes and meets them and nobody knows about it except the Lord, the person who prays diligently, for the wayward and the hurting and makes that their key ministry the, the shopkeeper who models his business on the way he conducts himself and his business in the community for the word of God. And, and as a Christian and is open to sharing the word of God with people, the Gideon that goes to schools and passes out Bibles to kids on the street and um, goes all over the place on and on and on and on and on all these things. We all have places in life and we have ministries So how are we doing with what we've been entrusted with? That's the question. That is the question. How are we doing? So the doubled talents that each servant brings is the fruit of their service to bring to Christ. The result of doing, of using the master's resources and gifts to accomplish his purposes. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, To each one, is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So that's our spiritual giftedness. To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit, a spiritual gift for the common good. Well, what if you don't care about the common good? What if that just doesn't enter your mind? What if the gift of God to you is a cruel burden to you? What if serving the master is not an honor to you, but an intrusion on your life? What if it's like that? Well, that's how the third servant sees it. Verse 24. And the one who also had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew that you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, and I was afraid. So I went and hid your talent in the ground. See? You have what is yours. I dug it up. Master, you are so mean that I was afraid of what you'd do if I lost it, so I buried it. It's right here. You are a hard man. So he looks on his master. Now remember, this is the kingdom of God, right? So this is somebody that says they're in the kingdom of God, and they look upon Christ as a cruel master, a brute, merciless, Cruel and unjust, telling him he takes where he has no right to take. He's that kind of person. And he suggests that had an investment gone wrong or the money been lost, the master would have demanded it anyway because he's so heartless. I was afraid. It's, it's your fault, you know, because you terrify me so much that I'm afraid. I, I couldn't cope with the responsibility you gave me because you're such a hard man. So, sir, I was faithful to your meanness by doing nothing. That's what he says. So he points to the bag of coins. He dug it up and said, here, here, you've got what, this is yours. What a pitiable man. And his view of the master, to view him like that, the kind master who knew him so well, he gave him only the amount of responsibility that he could handle. It wasn't too much. It was exactly right for him. Well, the master's not a fool, and he sees right through this, I was afraid of you, you're a mean person story. The whining. It's a lame excuse for being irresponsible. So, verse 26 there. His master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. (laughs) That's what it's about. It's not about... The master being scary, he's a wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. If you knew that, you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. I mean, he was gone a long time. He could have got something out of it. That's what we call touche as an answer there. If he really believed the master was so harsh, he wouldn't have buried the money. He would have made sure it produced something, some kind of interest, produced something. So the truth is about this slave, he's lazy and wicked. The truth is he had no regard for the master at all. He didn't care anything about the master. He's acting like, oh, I did care about you. You're just so horrific and scary and mean, but that's not really the thing. He he didn't want to do anything. He didn't want anything to do with it. You know, I always wonder how many people have worked out their excuses on judgment day, what they're gonna say. (laughs) The Bible says that all mouths will be shut, so I don't think they're gonna get to say it at all. They're gonna be instantly aware of all their wickedness and horrible sin. But the confidence to think that they can sway God with their excellent reasons for disregarding him, you know. I think some people do expect to have the opportunity to tell God why he didn't mean what he said he meant in the Bible and why they're not accountable to it. And why they just couldn't obey the words that were there that were written. Why they had to disregard his messengers. Why they had to shun godly friends' counsel. Why they had to go their own way. If only God understood their particular circumstances then of course, he could have just listed their exceptions for them but the Bible's only so long so obviously I had to decide what those exceptions were for myself so that I'm not accountable to, anyway, you can come up with all that kind of stuff. And if God should say, well I didn't intend any exceptions. Well, then you're just a cruel master, aren't you? Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, he says, it's common for people to make a light matter of that which will be their condemnation in the great day. And it's so true. People make light of the very thing that will condemn them in judgment. So as we see in the parable, their, their own tongues actually reveal their unbelief. He he thinks he's coming up with some kind of a reason. I was afraid because you're so hard. But the reason shows he doesn't even know who the master is. Some people think God is mean. Some people think he's a pushover and they're counting on that. But like in the previous parable when the bridegroom says to the foolish virgins, I don't know you. It's so true. They didn't know him. The God they worship isn't anything like the God who's really there. The real God is fearful and awesome and frightening and scary to those that don't know him. And when they hear about him, they don't like him. He's too serious. But if you know him and know the love that he had to send Christ into the world, you'd have a very different impression of him. Matthew Henry says, again, he says, carnal hearts. Carnal means fleshly, unspiritual people. Carnal hearts are apt to conceive false and wicked opinions concerning God and with them to harden themselves in their evil ways. But nothing is more unworthy of God nor more hinders our duty to him than slavish fear. This is directly opposite to that entire love which the great commandment requires. Those who think it impossible to please him and in vain to serve him will do nothing to purpose in religion. They complain that he requires of them more than they are capable of and punishes them for what they cannot help. But whatever they may pretend, the fact is they dislike the character and work of the Lord. That's really true. Remember all those incredible blessings that we were promised in Ephesians chapter 1 and adoption and redemption and forgiveness and the knowledge of his will and all the promises, I will never leave you or forsake you, all things work together for good to those who love God. To To people like that, this worldly unbelieving servant, he hears those words and they just don't connect at all in his head. He doesn't believe them. We find them wonderful. That's our very source of joy and comfort and our impetus to move forward and serve God. But for guys like this, they just don't register. God is not trustworthy. He's a hard man. He's unworthy of my efforts. Well, we have to look at what happens to this guy. Verse 28, he loses everything. Therefore, the master says, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. So he loses everything and that's the conclusion of the story, really. But the conclusion, the moral of the story, as we like to say, is, the, is what follows in verse 29. It says, for, so here's the principle, for to everyone who has more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. So the one who does not have, so what's it talking about? He doesn't have what? He doesn't have a genuine relationship with Christ as he is. He doesn't even know him. We said last week you're either born again or you're not born again. You're either the, the, the new life of the spirit is in you or else it's not in you, right? And if there isn't, even what you have will be lost. Well, what do, you, what do I have without that? You have a, a pretty good life on this planet. It's um, not perfect, but there's a lot of joys and good things here. pleasures, The pleasures of this passing world, as the Bible puts it. Uh, you have all of that, but you can't take that with you. After the judgment, none of that belongs to you anymore. None of those joys are there anymore. So when it passes, or when the man passes, or when both pass together, when this world is judged by God, those joys will be gone. There's no, there's no reward for this guy. Oh, thanks for my talent back. Here's your little reward. No, there's no reward. So in each of these parables we've looked at in Matthew 24 and 25, there's always doom at the end. So verse 30, it says, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There he is again, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the same fate that befalls the wicked servant at the end of chapter 24. The outer darkness here parallels the exclusion found in the doom of the foolish girls who were shut out of the wedding feast and the door was closed to them. They can't go in. There, there's just nothing left here. And that's what hell is it's exclusion from the presence and the glory of God. You're out. You're out. So whether it's fire or darkness, it's alone. So this man has no real master in his mind. He's not a true servant of the master. He did not love the master. He did not trust the goodness of the master. So he's excluded. So what does all that mean for us? Well, it's a warning, right? I mean, churchianity doesn't get you anything. It doesn't save you. Meager religiosity isn't anything in the end. It doesn't serve you. So it's pretty simple what the conclusion is. You need to know the God that's really there in his awesome, terrifying, holy judgment and in his incredible, amazing compassion. How do I know the God who is there? It's all in this book. It's all in here. It's his book. And in here, you'll meet a God who is profoundly holy Pure and righteous and just. He hates sin. And you'll find a God who loves sinners. Who loves sinners. He will undergo any sacrifice personally. God will undergo incredible sacrifices to save sinners. And he will meet the demands of his own justice so those that are sinful won't ever have to be condemned by that justice. It's an amazing thing. He's not mean, he's just. And his love knows no bounds for those who humbly come to him for mercy. God is a good God. He's good in that he's just and holy and he's good in that he's an incredible saving God for people that are completely unworthy. People like me who don't deserve anything from him except condemnation. Well, we've been through three parables with the same message. People who are not ready to face Christ are going to lose, big time. Salvation is in him, so to reject him or ignore him or to put him off or abuse his trust, and his kingdom will be denied to you. He's put it in several different stories so we can get a Pictures, pictures of what he's warning us about. Picture in your mind the wicked slave in the first parable in his drunken cruelty and suddenly his master standing there watching him in person. Picture the foolish girls pleading at the door, open to us, open to us. I don't know you. Picture in your mind this lazy fellow here making excuses with a bag of money in his hand and all that was taken from him and imagine his weeping in outer darkness so now after all of that after all these word pictures you're ready to hear it straight no stories just the way it's going to be and that's beginning in verse 31 and that's next week so come back and we'll look at that together let's pray and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together our great father we're so thankful that Christ tells us the truth It's astounding that people miss how gracious you are, how abundant your mercy is. They don't want it. And they look at you as harsh for being just and holy and good, as all wicked people do. They look at good people as harsh and mean because they're not like them. But we're all that way by nature against you. But by your saving profound mercy expressed through the blood of Jesus. We have a salvation that rescues us from all of that. And we can see you for who you really are. A God abounding in loving kindness and mercy. Pouring out the blood of your own son for us. Taking upon yourself our sin. And for that we thank you and give you glory today. In Jesus' name, amen.